0: Well, good morning. Hey, if you're new to Hope, we're welcome. If you're a college student, we're glad you're here. If you're joining us online, thank you for joining us online, even uh, live or after the fact. Um, so I'm Pastor Matt, and I'm glad to be here this morning. And I'll be down front for those of you who are here, If I'd love to just chat with you, or if you want to pray with somebody, I would love to do that. Um, if you're online, just Collins at eHope, send me an email, and I would pray for you through the email or. You know chat with you through that um, I want to ask you a question where did the word Christian come from because we use the word we use it as a title we're Christians right so where did it come from the interesting thing is the passage we're going to look at in the book of Acts basically says that the church the, the believers in Antioch the city of Antioch were first called Christians there and that's the first time that that word Christian is used in the Bible so it's a very interesting passage of Scripture. we want to look at that in a little bit. But I want to ask you a question. What does it mean to be a Christian today? I mean, the word Christian, when it's thrown out, it has all these connotations, right? So it means I'm not Buddhist. I'm not an atheist or agnostic. I'm not Hindu. I'm not Jewish. I'm Christian. Or I'm from America. And, you know, everybody knows that America is a Christian nation, right? You know, right? Um, or... I was raised in a certain tradition where Irish and Irish people tend to be Christian or Protestant or whatever, um, or Catholic or whatever. And, or, you know, you were raised in a certain family tradition where that's who you are. That, that's kind of your identity. You know, you're Christian like you are Italian or, or uh, Polish or whatever. That's just kind of part of your, your, your DNA as a, as a person, right? But the sad part about it is, as we look at the way Christianity is used today, or what Christians is used today, it has very different meanings to very different people. And the word has kind of lost its significance from where it first began. So we want to jump into that passage. So I want to encourage you to jump to the book of Acts chapter 11, And we're going to start at verse 19. So I want to just say this. As you're turning there, now Acts is in the New Testament. You have the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then you have the book of Acts, okay? So I'm assuming, and this is very true, I think, because, you know, we do surveys from time to time. Some of you have been Christians for a long time, and you know the Bible in and out. You, you know where to find the minor prophets, and you know, you know, and some of you are going, oh, there's minor prophets? I didn't even know that. Yeah, see, you're at home too, because we know that there are some of you that maybe you were part of a church, or you haven't been part of a church, or part of religion, and all of a sudden, this is kind of a new thing for you, and you can't have a hard time finding your way around and all that stuff. You're in good company, because there's a lot of people like you in this audience and probably watching. So that's okay. You're in good company. We're gonna to learn together today and we're gonna see what we see. All right, so I wanna read this passage. It's Acts 11, starting at verse 19. And we're gonna go through it. Let me read through it and then we'll talk about it, okay? Acts chapter 11, verse 19. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among the Jews some of them however men from Cyprus and Cyrene went to Antioch and began to speak to the Greeks also telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus the Lord's hand was with them and a great number of people <coughs> excuse me a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord news of this reached the church in Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas to Antioch now let me just stop there for a minute so you have the the, the, the main central point of the church at this early stage is found in Jerusalem, in Judea. And it's from this place where they launched the missionaries, we would call them. All right? So Barnabas is is sent from the church in Jerusalem to go to Antioch and to report back. and say, And just, what do you see there? What's happening in Antioch? So that's what's going on there. Um, the, you need to know the apostles are in Jerusalem. They're still, you know, in Jerusalem. So they're sending him out as an envoy to find out what's going on. When he arrived and saw the grace of God, the, the, uh, the grace of, what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul and when he found him he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. Now let me just stop there for a minute. So this is very interesting because what's happening here is Saul or, or Barnabas realizes very quickly that there's God is moving in this in this city and w- in Christians and the, and they're just living out the Christian life and other people their neighbors or friends are seeing it and they're coming They're putting their faith in Jesus, okay? They're becoming Christians, essentially, that's what's happening. So Barnabas immediately realizes he needs somebody in there as a good teacher. Now, Paul, his name is Saul, and it becomes Paul. And frankly, you're going to see Saul in this passage, but later on, you'll just see Paul. And it's going to always be Paul, it'll never be Saul. But this is kind of an early transition. So he, Saul becomes Paul. So he goes to Tarshish. That's where Saul lived. And he got Saul and he brought him to Antioch. And they spent a year. And probably Paul did a lot of the teaching. Now Paul is much more seasoned than he was. And, but he's teaching them for a year in Antioch. Now, what, and I, I mentioned this. And I don't have really time to go into it. But I did a short devotional on Wednesday. And I talked about this. What's interesting here is Barnabas was one of these guys that was willing to play second fiddle. He was willing to, to be a role player. And so when he brought Saul in, he knew that Saul had gifts that he didn't have. And so he brought him on and it made the team stronger. Now what happens is, what we're going to see is, we see it listed as, as Barnabas and Saul. But later on, we're going to see it listed as Paul and Barnabas. Now that's a shift and it's a significant one. And what is happening here is the same thing that happened with John the Baptist and Jesus. Remember when John the Baptist came, he was the forerunner of Jesus. And uh, people came to John the Baptist and says, are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ, right? And, and John said, no, I'm not the Christ. And at one point he says, I'm not even, I'm not even fit to, to, to loose and tie his sandals. I'm not even worthy of doing that. And then in another, another place, John says, he, Christ, must increase and I must decrease. In other words, he's saying, I'm not the star of the show. I'm a role player. I'm a support person. Now, Barnabas is going to do the same thing because he realizes Paul has gifts that he doesn't have. And so we're going to see Barnabas kind of step from the front to the back and Saul, Paul, is going to step forward. And, and he was a team player. So that's a shift you're going to see as we read through this uh, in the weeks to come. But notice um, the next phrase. It says the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted. A severe famine would spread over the whole Roman Empire. This happened during the reign of Claudius, who was a Roman uh, ruler. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for brothers and sisters living in Judea. So let me give you just a little bit of background information so that we can make sense of this. Um, Antioch, at this point in time, uh, world history, is the third largest city in the world. It was behind Rome and Alexandria, Egypt. Okay, so it's it's a large city, but secondly, it's a very multi multicultural city. Uh, there were uh, Greeks and Arabs and Persians and Jews. The Jews made up about a, a one seventh of the population. So it was a very cosmopolitan. It was like Chicago or New York or L.A. It was multi you know cultural city. Um, Antioch also. It's interesting, the gospel, the good news, and those are used interchangeably. It's the same Greek word, euangelion, it's a Greek word. And it just means good news or gospel. We use those interchangeably in English. But essentially, good news, they were, the Christians were just sharing the good news. In other words, what is the good news? Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, Christ died for our sins, and he was buried, and on the third day he rose again right and it was seen by many witnesses that's the good news he died for our sins and he was buried and he was really dead and then he rose on the third day that's the gospel and so they're sharing this good news message the gospel message and um, people are trusting and putting their faith in Jesus we'll talk more about that in a minute Um, but notice there's no structure there's no elders there's no deacons there's no apostles it's just people and so that just goes to show you how God moves. And God is blessing the church. The n- next thing I want you to see is that, that Barnabas is a Hellenistic Jew. Um, now, what do I mean by that? <laughs> Barnabas had a- a- adopted the language and culture of the Greeks. So he could speak the Greek language, he understood the culture. So he was a perfect one to go to this very Gentile city and bring the gospel. That's, that's essentially what's going on here. Um, As I said before, Saul's later going to become Paul, and uh, we're going to see that he's a well-seasoned servant now, and he's got got things to learn yet, but he's uh, on his way. Now, you heard this statement said before, if you were put on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Now, some of you are thinking, oh, that's interesting, I don't know. Uh, But some of you think, well, that's a dopey statement. I think that's kind of dopey. Okay, I get that. Uh, But it's an interesting statement to think about because we use the phrase Christian a lot, and we use it for very different things. And sometimes we who feel like we're committed to Jesus Christ hear somebody else who isn't, who still uses the name, and we go, I don't know if you really understand what that name means. That's what we want to talk about. The question we want to answer today is what is a Christian or who is a Christian? Um, and I think we can learn that from the church of Antioch. Uh, there's just two real simple points that I want have that a message. The first one is this. A Christian is somebody who trusts in and turns to Jesus. A Christian is somebody who trusts in and turns to Jesus. Notice in verse uh, 21 of chapter 11, the Lord's hand was with them and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Now this idea of turning is that idea of repentance. We'll talk more about that in a minute. Repentance means I do a 180. That I realize that I'm going away from God and I stop and I turn and I go back to God. And uh, I put my faith and trust in Jesus rather than myself. That's really what it means to repent. Um, But notice, they believed and they turned their lives over to the Lord. They didn't add Jesus to their lives. They found a whole new purpose and meaning in Jesus. Now, there's a lot of people out there today who would say, I go to church, I believe in Jesus, But they've never given their lives to Jesus. Now, what Jesus did on the cross was he gave his life for you and for me. And he said, I am going to give you my life. I'm going to substitute and take your sin and give you my righteousness. We don't deserve it. We don't earn it. It is gifted to us. And the Bible says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's what the Bible teaches. And that's what Christianity teaches. And that's what we believe. But there are people out there who say, well, I think Jesus is cool. I think being called a Christian is great. I was raised in a home where we were Christian. But I don't have any relationship with Jesus. I don't really guide, allow his word or his spirit to guide my life. I don't do that. I just use the word kind of as a little seat, right? Now, too many Christians or too many people think becoming a Christian is just believing in Jesus And living for themselves but you can't really say that here's what it comes down to over and over in Jesus ministry he called people to follow him remember he called the first uh, apostles and they were mending their nets and he said come follow me and it says immediately they left their nets and they followed him and he did this over and over and over. But there were some times, and we're going to look at a passage in a minute, where he called people and they go, yeah, I'm not ready. Oh, uh, no, I don't think so. Uh, sometime, maybe. And, and he, he, at one point he says, let the dead bury the dead, you know. And basically uh, there's a point. Uh, I want to put a disclaimer on because I think we get this mixed up. Some people, and maybe you're one of those people, maybe you're watching and you're one of those people, You think, Matt, my life is a mess. It is an absolute disaster. I have to get my life together. I have to figure things out. I have to kind of pull it together before I can give my life to Jesus. In other words, I have to clean up before I come to him. I have to to fix myself before I come. No, you got it backwards. That's, That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that you are And and understand, this is what the scriptures teach. Whatever you do with it, you have to decide what you're going to do with it, but this is what the scriptures teach. The scriptures teach we aren't born with a clean slate, that we're born sinners. You don't have to teach your kid to say no, they get that. And they don't have any friends to teach them no, they get that. And some of you are parents, and that was the first, you were thinking, they're going to say mommy or daddy or, or puppy or something, and the first word they say is no, okay, and you go, where'd that come from? And then, you know, so th- there's a point where we realize that there's, there's something within us and there's something within our culture that we would call evil, sinful, wrong. And we know it's wrong. We see it and it's wrong. We know that when, when young women are abused, I mean, we see, we, we know kind of what's gonna be going on in Afghanistan with young women. We know that's wrong. Well, why do we know that's wrong? Who put it in our head that that's wrong, right? We know there's evil. We know there's bad things going on. And the Bible says that we're all sinners, that we all fall short of God's glory, that we all choose to go our own direction. That's what the the Old Testament writer says, Isaiah. That we choose to do our own path. We want to live our own life. But if Jesus truly is the one who created the heavens and the earth, if he truly is God, And he did make the heavens and the earth, and he did create us in his image. It makes sense that when we connect with our creator, we will find our purpose and we will find our meaning. But it it comes to a place where you have to understand that it's not about you cleaning your life up and getting your life intact. You come as you are. You acknowledge, I'm a sinner and I need a savior. I'm drowning and I need a lifeguard to pull me out because I can't swim. And when you come to that place in your life, what will happen is you put your trust in him. The Bible calls it, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. When you just say, and by the way, this is exactly what happened. Remember there were two thieves on the, either side of Jesus on the cross? And they, if you read the gospel accounts, the, the one account says they were both chiding Jesus, making fun of him. But then one of them had a change of heart. I mean, they're being crucified, literally being crucified on a Roman cross. And they're having a dialogue. I would be going, like, I'm dying here. I don't really have much energy. But, okay, so at one point, the the one looks at the other one, and he goes, you know what? We deserve to be here. We committed crimes. This man is innocent. And he looks to Jesus, and he says what? He says, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. And what does Jesus say to him on the cross? Well, you're not a Christian yet. I wish you had... Joined a church. I wish you had been baptized. No, he says, today you'll be with me in Paris. What does this man do? He called on the name of the Lord. That's as simple as it is. You come as you are with all your baggage. Now, the problem is we we try to leverage ourselves. We try to make ourselves better. But here's the point I want you to see, the first point. Forgiveness comes to those who follow Jesus. Jesus says, "Come, follow me." Now, where are you today? Are you willing to follow him? Are you willing to go and follow him today? Here's the second point: those who put their trust in uh, the Christians are those who put their faith into action. It's one thing to say that you are a Christian. It's another thing to be a Christ follower. It's another thing to let your uh, your actions uh, back up your words. See, those who gave their lives to Jesus, they took part in the mission of the kingdom. They were just sharing their faith. They were living their lives in, in, in moral and godly ways. They were helping their neighbors. They were thinking of others besides themselves. And they made an impression on their neighbors. They cared in a tangible way for brothers and sisters when they heard of the news. So they had this prophet come down named Agabus, and I don't really want to get into that, other than to say, he said there's going to be a famine, and Judea, the region of Judea, and Jerusalem in particular, is going to be hard hit. And so they decided... You know what? It's one thing to say that we believe. It's another thing to put our money where our mouth is. So they began to take an offering because they knew there were other people in Jerusalem that were going to need help. And so they decided to take an offering and to give it to Paul and Barnabas, and that Paul and Barnabas would take it back. And, and so they, they put their money where their mouth was. They did something. They cared in a tangible way for their brothers and sisters. Uh, look at verses 29 and 30. The disciples. As each one was able, they decided to provide help for their brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. They had made such an impact on their neighbors that their neighbors began to say, hey, what are we gonna call these guys? What are we gonna call these people? And they called them Christians. In other words, these these believers didn't sit around and say, "Hey, what should we call ourselves?" No, it was their neighbors. Now, we don't know if it was in derision that they 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 did that or whatever, but this is the name that we use today. We we are Christ followers. We are Christians. Uh, he is the Messiah we believe. And and it's an amazing thing when God's people decide to live for Christ in such depth and power, um uh, that their community invent a new name to describe what they see. Can you imagine that? That's amazing. To have the people you live with say, you know what? I see something in you that I've never seen before. I don't even know how to describe it. I'm going to call you a Christian because I guess you follow the Messiah. See, when true faith is lived out, our neighbors will stop and take notice. Now, for many of you, this is old news. You've heard this before. I mean, you know what it means to tr- turn to and trust in Jesus. You know what that is. You've heard it. You say, Pastor, come on. This is not one of your better messages. This is, this is like the ABCs, and, and I'm in fifth grade. Uh, and you know that uh, the second point, you know what it means to follow Jesus, but, 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 you claim to be a Christian. But you know what Christians are known for? If you were to ask, if you were to go out and just do a survey of 100 people, here's some of the things you'd hear. Christians are ethically and morally challenged. Christians are arrogant and hypocritical. Christians are selfish and stingy. And they'd be right. They'd be absolutely right. You see, we... we, 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 don't, we would never say this out loud, but this, this, this is our behavior. This is our behavior. I'm a Christian, but I sleep around. I know the Bible says I shouldn't, but I do. I'm a Christian, and I'm living with someone outside of marriage. We'll get married someday, maybe. I don't know. And by the way, this isn't just young people. This is adults. This is older people. They say, Pastor, we're living together, but we're doing it because it's more economical. Okay, whatever. I'm a Christian, but I regularly regularly look at porn. Oh, okay. Is it getting quiet in here or is it just me? (laughs) I'm a Christian, but my mouth is like a sewer and I swear like a sailor. When I'm not around Christian people, oh man. (laughs) Hang on. I'm a Christian, but I'm addicted to alcohol, drugs, gambling, work, hobbies. If I were to ask you, what are the top three things in your life? You'd say, God, my, my wife, if I'm married, my family. Those would be the top three. But if I were to follow you around for the, last, for the next month, and I said, where did you spend your time? Where did you spend your, your creative abilities? And where did you spend your money? I would find out maybe something very, very different. I'm a Christian, but I'm not involved in any local Christian community. I'm not part of a local church, but I'm a Christian. I don't like the church. It's hypocritical. They're 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 not friendly and they're not nice. And and I would just say it's the bride of Christ. Call it what you will. We're imperfect, but you know what? Uh, I want to tell you something. When you go to the reception after a wedding. Probably it's not the best thing to do to walk up to the bride in front of the groom and say, you're kind of ugly, you know that? (laughs) And if Jesus calls the church his bride, he knows it's got a lot of, "Mm," right? I'm a Christian, but I don't share my time, my talent, or my money. I kind of look out for me. And if I have extra, that must mean God has blessed me to spend more on me. And yet, what does the Bible say? If you have more than you need, maybe it's for someone else. I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian parent, but my kids are clueless about Jesus. We don't pray together and we never talk about Jesus. We don't read the Bible. We don't do any of that. But my kid's going to be a good baseball player, soccer player someday. I'm a Christian, but I'm a terrible neighbor, employee, or employer. If you were to ask my employees and say, hey, I hear he's a Christian, what do you think? Are you kidding? Really? He says he's a Christian? Have you heard him talk? Have you watched him do his business deals? There's no way this guy's a Christian. Or, uh, let's put it this way, your coworker, you'd say, hey, he's a Christian. What, what do you think of that? Really? This guy? Do you know he's cheating on his wife? Do you know he cheats on his taxes? Do you know he lies like a... Do you know he's dishonest in work? Do you know any of that? I'm sorry. If he says he's a Christian, that's great. I don't believe it. And we wonder. And I could go on and on and on. But when a Christian doesn't live up to their name, Christian, or when they do, let me put it that way, when a Christian does live up to their name as Christian, It's an exception, not the rule. It's a unicorn. Have you ever had anybody walk up to me and say, you know what, you may be the first person that I've ever met that you really believe what you say you believe. You really live what you really believe, what you say you believe. You really live it out. I don't, I don't. think I've ever met anybody like that. You're gracious. You're forgiving. You admit. You you acknowledge your sin. You you are generous. You are you know you you're caring. I've never met anybody like you. They're unicorns. They aren't the exception. And so, is it any wonder when we use the word Christian, people's eyes glaze over like, yeah, okay, whatever. See, following Jesus is not a hobby. It is life. So I want to read you a passage from Mark. It'll be up on the screen. I love this passage. Let me give you the context. So this rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he says to him, he says, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Which is a great question. So let me just stop there for a minute because I want to just talk about that the question he asks is really such a profound question what must I do to inherit eternal life there's a couple things that he's saying there somehow I have to earn eternal life and number two there's eternal life okay those are two really so let's talk about the second one then we'll talk about the first one and then we'll get to the passage really quick because I have to move along All right. so is, is there eternal life I mean, that's really what he's assuming. He's assu- and we as Christians are assuming there's eternal life, right? There's three views of life and death. There's three views. They boil down to this. Um, people who are atheistic or agnostic, or they believe in scientism, they would basically say, you live and you die, and you rot. You, know, you live, you die, you rot. All your memories, all those things, you just you, when your brain dies, you rot. Your, your life is over. Any... Experiences and memories, they're gone, you move on, that's it. Whatever memory there will be of you, it will be in the minds of people around you, family, friends, whatever. But when they die, that dies too. I mean, do you, any, any of you know your great-grandparents? Maybe. Okay. So that's the first one. You live and you die. And that emphasizes the, the physicalness of this world. That this world is a physical world, uh, all that I can see, touch, taste, whatever those that, that's all there is, okay on the other side of that is what i would what, what I would say is the the view that emphasizes the spiritual nature of this world, that there is a spiritual dimension to this world, just like uh it's something we can't see, we can't touch, but it's there uh, it, there is evil uh, there's there's things that we we say where did that come from uh, you, is it just a brain disorder, or is there really something else going on there? And so this would be Hinduism, Buddhism, uh, Eastern religions. Um, and they say you live and you lie, you live and you die, and you, you reincarnate. And you basically are a spirit being. And the Greeks taught that the body was the prison of the soul, the spirit, the immaterial part, the spiritual part, right? And so when you die, your spirit is released into the energy of the universe. And you've heard people teach it. I, I know there's a teacher on PBS that teaches this all the time. And basically, you go into the into the, the reservoir of Godness of the universe. And you come out again, maybe in reincarnation or transmigration or something. other form and uh, you know there's karma and all that that goes in but each one is a little different but essentially it is it focuses on the spirit part of a being and it says you live and you die and you reincarnate or you transmigrate but you go into the energy of the universe but you still lose all your memories and you start over again what does Christianity say You live and you die and you resurrect with a physical body that will be resurrected somehow. It'll be different, but like this present body. Now, those are all beliefs because you can't prove either one of them, either three of them. You can't prove that. Christianity teaches you live and you die and you resurrect and you live forever. That's what it teaches Now, even if you believe in materialism or spiritualism, which one would you want to be true? Right? Because in Christianity, all your memories are retained. Paul talks about in Thessalonians, a gathering in the clouds with your friends that have gone and being together with them forever. Is it by faith? Absolutely. Is materialism by faith? Absolutely. Is spiritualism by faith? Absolutely. It's all by faith. So the young man comes to Jesus and he says, what must I do to earn eternal life? Earn. Well, can you earn it? And and Jesus says, well, you know the commandments. He says, yes, I've kept them from a young, you know, since I was young. And then let's jump into the passage now. Mark ten twenty one, Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he says, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. All right, let's just stop there for a minute. So it's very interesting. This man basically loved his riches. Because riches, what do riches provide? They provide security, they provide, um, you know, there's status, there's, there's all this good stuff that comes with it. And Jesus says, you can only have one God. You have to let go of this God and you have to come follow me. You have to give this up and come follow me. And it said the, the man was, was struck by this but was saddened because he was very rich. And then it says this, at this The man's face fell, and he went away sad because he had great wealth. Now, this is very interesting to me because every time in Scripture where you see people walking away from Jesus, their heads are down, their countenance is not positive, and it's dark. Judas, when he betrays Jesus at the Last Supper, remember that? Jesus says, what you do, do quickly. And he leaves. And John's gospel, I believe it's John's gospel, says, and it was night. John is not telling us it's dark out. That wasn't his point. His point was that that there is a spiritual darkness that Judas didn't leave with a big smile and a grin and happiness on his face. His head was down. He was dejected. And he was on the mission to make the best of a bad situation, make a little money off of betraying Jesus. Every time you choose to walk away from Jesus, you will walk into darkness and you will lose hope and joy and happiness and purpose and meaning. That is told in Scripture. And so this young man basically walked away from Jesus because he had a little God that he loved more, that brought him security and status and significance. But what I love is the first phrase did you catch that? Verse 21? Jesus looked at him and loved him. I wish Christians would have that attitude towards lost people. That's what the Bible calls them, lost people. That they would love them. They wouldn't hate them. Wouldn't condemn them. Wouldn't judge them. But would show love towards them. Wouldn't that make a difference? I mean, there was a day that I was lost. There was probably a day that you were lost. If you're watching, there's a day that you were lost. What happens when you die? Well, the Bible says, those who call upon the name of the Lord shall be gathered together, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. But you have to come to a place where you realize you need help, that you're a sinner and you need a Savior. Savior that you have sinned, that you have violated God's law, that Jesus came as a rescue party of one to give his life so that you could live. The last words that Jesus said on the cross was, it is finished. God became man. You say, I don't know if I understand that. How am I supposed to believe that? Well, it's faith. It is faith. But it's just like any other world system. You have to believe and The question I want to ask you is have you turned to Jesus he came to set you free you don't clean your life up you come as you are and you allow him to do the work that needs to be done but when you give your so let me give you a quick illustration I have to do this rather quickly so we had a wedding here about a month ago and in weddings the the couple give they make vows promises to one another and I always say to couples I need to read your vows if you're going to write them out we have traditional vows that we do but if you're going to if you're going to if you're going to write your vows out I'd like to read them before you, we we do that and um, because why because sometimes I get vows like the first time I saw you I knew I was in love that's not a vow it's an observation right. There may be morning, I'm going to warn you, there may be mornings you're going to wake up and you go, I don't know if I love you this morning. I don't feel it. <laughs> right? Right? So vows are promises where you say, I will stay with you in, whether life is good or bad, whether we're rich or poor, whether you're healthy or not. I am committing my life. And as the couple commits their lives to one another before their friends and before God, they make promises to one another. And the vows are rare, you know, usually very short. Though the wedding that took place a month ago, the vows were literally seven minutes long each. After a minute, I said, I'm out. I mean, I was just back here running the video, and I just said, I don't know. I mean, after this, there's no, I, yeah, I'm going to do my best, but you, I mean, it was great that they, they decided to write such extensive vows to one another. But I think a lot of people who have been married for a number of years knew that when this couple made those promises to one another, as they walked out that door, in the next couple days and weeks and months, they were going to determine who was going to and how they were going to keep their vows to one another because it gets tricky and it gets challenging and it gets hard. Amen? Right. But you do it because you made a promise. And because you, have a, you started a journey And sometimes you have to compromise. And sometimes you have to say, I'm sorry, please forgive me. And you have to repent. And that's all part of being married. This is how it happens. You make promises and then you begin a journey. The same is true in the Christian life. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord. What did Jesus do on the cross? He says, I love you this much. I give my life to you. And then when we call on the Lord, what are we doing? We're saying, I give my life to you. And then we begin a journey together. And what I'm suggesting is there's a lot of Christians that have made a vow to Jesus. They've made a promise because Jesus made the promise to them. But Jesus walks out alone. They're not with him. They may have started to walk out with him, but they're not with him anymore. The Bible says a Christian is somebody who walks with Jesus, who follows him. That's what we do. We're not always perfect. We're not always right. We know that. Paul puts it this way. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, forgiven. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified and is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. So Alexander the Great, one of the great uh, conquerors, um, He heard one time that there was a soldier that was given his name, but was quite the coward. So Alexander had the young uh, soldier brought before him, and this is what the, the dialogue was. Is your name, Alexander asked, is your name Alexander, and are you named for me? The trembling coward said, yes, sir, my name is Alexander, and I was named for you. Alexander replied, then either be brave or change your name. Folks, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, either begin and start to follow him or stop calling yourself a Christian. Amen? Stand with me. Let's pray. Father, help us to take whatever your spirit, your word has convicted us in our heart today to heart so that we change. Help us to live as Christians. We know we're not perfect. We know we're flawed. We know we're needy. We know we need help, Father. We are imperfect people. Help us to acknowledge that and admit it. But, Father, help us to walk with you this week. And thank you for sending your son, Jesus, to give us life and to give us hope and to give us forgiveness. Father, we just pray that anyone in this room or watching, if they've never trusted the Lord, today would be the day that they would say, Jesus, I realize I'm a sinner and I need a Savior, and I realize you're my, your only hope, and I just today put my trust in you, and I want to begin a journey with you today. Father, as if they pray that prayer, I pray that you would bring other people that can help them as they take that journey with Jesus. And Father, may your church make a difference uh, for your kingdom in this community for good. We pray this in Jesus' name.